Mark, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. It's great to have you here. So to start, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? Uh, I am a social psychologist. Social psychologists study the behavior, people's behavior in social settings and the social influences on their behavior. Uh, I recently retired from Duke University after 40 years of teaching at four different institutions. Uh, I'm still staying busy professionally, but um, that's what I have done for my professional career. Wonderful. So that's um, a very modest <laughs> introduction, Mark. So we'll, we'll get into a little bit about um, you know, your research and your work. So to start, uh, you published a book called The Curse of the Self. Now, before we discuss this whole topic of the self, can you give us your understanding and your definition of what the self is? Yes, the word self has really been a problem within psychology. Uh, somebody did a study and found that it has been used in 11 completely different ways. So I try to avoid using the word self by itself because when you use the word self, people don't really know what you're talking about. So I prefer to use words that are hyphenated self words because if I say self-concept, People know, well, that means your beliefs about yourself. If I talk about self-awareness, people know that I'm talking about your awareness and your thoughts about yourself. So I, I try to avoid the word self. But if you push me to define it, I would say that self is the psychological mechanism that allows us to think consciously about ourselves. Uh, we often don't think of the fact that most animals go through their lives never having conscious thoughts about themselves. They're processing information about their environment and their own movements, but they don't sit and ponder themselves the way human beings do. We have some special psychological apparatus. Few other animals have a better, very basic version of this, but we have a psychological apparatus that allows us to think consciously about ourselves. So anything that psychologists study that involves the self involves things that are involved in, in which this capacity for self-awareness is, is operational. So we think about ourselves in good and bad ways, and we wonder about what we're going to do, and we wonder what we're like. All of that involves the self. So I'm going to try to avoid that word as we talk, and I'll use more precise words so everybody knows what I'm talking about. Wonderful. If I use the word self, please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> it might slip. Uh, so another word that is equally, I think, problematic is the word ego. Yes. And you hear, yes, you know what I'm talking about. So we hear a lot about being egoic or egotistical or egocentric. And each one of those means a little bit something different. Yes. And we have, you know, terms like ego dissolution, uh, which people, you know, who are meditating or who are doing psychedelics are kind of um, shooting for. So what does ego mean? If we trace the actual origins of the word ego, ego is the Latin word for I, capital I. So all it really means is when you're talking about the ego, you're talking about things that are happening in which I or me or mine, the things I possess and the connections that I have are somehow relevant. So when we talk about egotism, for example, talk about somebody being egotistical, they are thinking about themselves. I am great. They're, they're evaluating themselves positively. That's egotism. The word egoic means I'm focusing on me. I is very prominent in my, in my thoughts at the moment. I'm being egoic. We talk about egocentric. We talk about the fact that I'm perceiving the world through my own lenses. My view of the world is the only one that's correct. So it really just means me, I, the process that's operating that makes me think about me. And I know that all sounds very cumbersome, but it's, again, I try to avoid ego because it, had, it has also been used in many different ways. And even when Freud used it, he really used it just to talk about the process by which we think about ourselves. I did this, I did that, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm okay. Um, ego just means I, big capital I. Okay, that just makes sense. <laughs> that clears up a lot. I think that you know, I've spoken with a lot of uh, friends who are in the meditation spaces and, you know, more spiritual, and they talk about uh, getting rid of the ego. 
And I always, I always say, you know, you might be able to reach that during meditation. And that's, that's a very helpful state to be in, right? Like flow state where we kind of lose our sense of selves. But yes. the moment you go back to reality, it snaps back like a rubber band. You know, you can't, you can't get away from yourself. Uh, and it has to snap back because we can't yeah. function throughout our days without thinking about ourselves. Now, meditation is is exceptionally important. I meditate because I want to reduce how much my I, my me, is affecting my thoughts and behavior because we think about ourselves way too much. And that's where those curses of the self come in. But anybody who thinks they're going to completely eliminate their capacity to think about themselves, they're not going to function. You have to be able to think about the future and the past and to make plans, know who you are and what you're all about. We just happen to do it too much. Right. I love this quote by Michael Pollan, who, you know, with his whole how to change your mind, yes. he said, you know, the ego isn't all bad. The ego wrote the book. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, you know, we can't get away from that. And we, we need that ability to be self-referential. So to uh, diverge into an uh, uh, equally problematic word, uh, self-esteem. Yes. And self-esteem, I think when people hear this word, they think of this kind of warm and fuzzy feeling that we have about ourselves. And, you know, your work has shown that it's more nuanced than that. So can you give us a little bit of your history around this term and how the sociometer theory came about? Well, for the first 15 years of my career, I avoided the concept of self-esteem like it was the plague. I didn't <laughs> understand it. People talked about how important it was. We needed to build up people's self-esteem. People were motivated to have high self-esteem. And I just had trouble understanding why is it that simply feeling good about yourself would always have benefits. And a lot of psychologists believe that. Now, we're not talking here about, for example, self-confidence. Yes, you need to believe that you can do the things that you can actually do. And some people lack self-confidence. They don't think they're able to do things they could probably do. So I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about self-esteem. I'm, so, I'm not talking about um, self-confidence. I'm talking about self-esteem. And self-esteem, it's even different than a self-evaluation because I can evaluate myself well and say, hey, I'm really pretty good at this. Or I could, could evaluate myself negatively and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not a great guy. Those are just cognitive beliefs of positivity or negativity. Self-esteem is the emotional correlate of that. How good do I feel about myself or how bad do I feel about myself? That's what self-esteem is. So a lot of people say, well, don't, shouldn't people have a lot of confidence? Well, yes, if it's well-placed and it's accurate, sure. Um, but should people walk around always feeling good about themselves? And I kept thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense because sometimes we shouldn't feel good about ourselves. We say and do things and think things that probably aren't very functional. They may, might be even immoral. Well, then you ought to feel badly about yourself. So I avoided the topic like crazy, even though almost everything I studied, people always wanted to know, well, how does this relate to self-esteem? And I'd say, right. I don't know. And I almost don't care because I don't understand it. But then we stumbled upon a finding. I started doing research on social rejection, uh, the area of people's efforts to be accepted and how they react when they're rejected was really under-researched. And so we started doing a lot of studies looking at people's emotional reactions when they feel like they're being left out or rejected or ostracized. And what we began to find in a couple of studies, we simply put in a measure of self-esteem, just wondering what would happen. And every one of those studies, when people felt rejected, their self-esteem went down. And most of the time when they felt accepted, their self-esteem went up. And it was almost like it was, a, I started thinking of it as a gauge, almost, an internal psychological gauge of how accepted or rejected I felt. And that led us to, to develop the theory you just mentioned called sociometer theory, spelled sociometer. I just thought sociometer sounded cooler than sociometer. Right, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah, it's laughs> and, and sort of suggesting that self-esteem is our internal gauge of the degree to which we currently, at the moment, feel accepted or rejected by other people, because it seems to go up and down like a fuel gauge. 
If we have a lot of acceptance in our tank, we feel good about ourselves. And if we have rejection, we feel less good. Now, you might act, well, ask, well, is that really good? Should we feel differently about ourselves based on what other people are feeling about us? And my answer would be yes, most of the time. Now, we can get into the fact that people's self-esteem is sometimes affected by acceptance and rejection when it shouldn't be. But right. in, gen in general, if you think about the importance of having good connections with other people and being accepted and being valued, and being integrated into groups, we have to have a monitoring system that tells us when we may have done something that would damage our relationships with other people, that would lead them to devalue us or reject us. And in my view, self-esteem is part of that system. It's not the whole thing. So our self-esteem goes up and down on a daily basis. We have an interaction with somebody and it's really pleasant. They seem to like us and we walk away kind of feeling good about ourselves. We have an interaction where it's clear they didn't want to talk to us and they're looking over our shoulder for somebody more interesting to talk to. Yeah, it's kind of deflating. And it's those feelings of going up and down and how I feel about myself that changes my behavior to make me more socially acceptable. So that's fundamentally what sociometer theory is about. Okay, so a few questions there. What would you say is the difference between self-esteem and confidence? Okay, confidence, I think, is the belief in the probability that I can do something. So okay. it's, it's, and, it, and it could be a pretty objective judgment is, yes, I believe that I can run a mile in a certain speed. I have confidence I can do that, or I have confidence I'll succeed at this job. Now, it's true, the more confidence I have, particularly about positive attributes, the better I'm going to feel about myself. If I think I'm a good athlete or a good student or a good salesperson, yeah, people are going to accept me because of that and my self-esteem will be higher. So self-confidence can correlate with self-esteem and that's fine. But it's the difference between a probabilistic judgment. Can I really achieve this thing I'm trying to do at the moment? And how do I feel about myself? That's the difference. Okay. So... Speaking of this uh, topic of self-esteem and how, you know, in the last 20 years, we've heard a lot about, you know, boosting our self-esteem and how we can increase the children's self-esteem. And there was a, this whole initiative to boost self-esteem. Now, I think that obviously we've seen the results of that are very problematic because when you try to directly, you know, attack, self-esteem itself and you forget that there's this very interpersonal component that's that's a healthy measure of how we're doing socially and that's that's a very important thing you know being social animals understanding our value in terms of our relationships is very very important and trying to inorganically and inflate our self-esteem, I think we've seen that leads to narcissism or narcissistic qualities and uh, very much a self-obsession. So I would love to hear your take on where, where did we go wrong in the last 20 years with this initiative? Uh, you're absolutely right. In the 1980s and 90s in particular, there were a lot okay. of efforts, even funded by state governments, to try to enhance the self-esteem of the population. Now, it was well-intentioned. Because if you look at the research literature, low self-esteem does correlate with a lot of negative things. It correlates with depression. It correlates with gang membership. It correlates with uh, poor performance in school. And the assumption was, well, the problem here in these kinds of things is that if people had higher self-esteem, they, they wouldn't be as depressed. They wouldn't join gangs. They would perform better in school. But I think they had the order of causality wrong. It's not that self-esteem was a good thing that was creating good behavior. It was that self-esteem was the consequence of living sort of a positive, socially valued sort of life in which people accept you. Your self-esteem is going to be higher. So when you start thinking of self-esteem as a gauge, it's like the fuel gauge on your car. If you're running out of gas, it doesn't help to get a screwdriver out and go in and change the screw, the, the, so the fuel gauge so it reads like you have a full tank. You still don't have enough gas in the tank. And so that's, that's what the problem has been, is we've tried to raise self-esteem in the absence of the behaviors and the qualities that should naturally lead to self-esteem because it makes us get along better with other people. It, it, it's an indication of social value that we're behaving in ways that make other people want to accept us. So that was the problem. It was very well intentioned. It's just that they had the 
direction of causality wrong about what self-esteem did. And you're absolutely right. You know, to change a gauge without changing the thing the gauge is supposed to measure is not going to produce positive benefits. And so we developed all these programs to make kids in particular, but people in general, feel better about themselves. Now, some of those were well-placed because it is true. There are many people, and we, we all fall into this sometimes, who don't feel as good about ourselves as we probably should that we have accomplished things. People do like us. We do belong to groups. We have connections with others. But for one reason or another, we've gotten feedback along the way. This made our self-esteem abnormally low. In that case, it is a problem with the gauge, with the meter. We want to get people's self-esteem to be commensurate with how accepted they really are. But if you take people who, in fact, have low self-esteem because they're, they are, have had challenges in being accepted, maybe through no fault of their own. They've just grown up in an environment where they were an outcast or the family didn't love them or they moved around too much and never formed connections. Their self-esteem may be low, but we can't raise it without building those connections and relationships that's going to raise self-esteem. So sometimes it's people, not anybody's fault. Sometimes it is in the sense that if I grew up in a way where I'm, I'm an obnoxious person, I trip, nobody likes me, they really don't. I am rude and I treat people badly and I bully them. And so I'm rejected. I might have low self-esteem, but in an odd sort of way, and some people really bristle when I say this, in an odd sort of way, we kind of deserve it. Most of the times when I feel bad about myself, I deserve to feel bad about myself. I, I said or did something I shouldn't have done that could potentially affect my connections with other people. So uh, if we try to fill the gas, if we try to make it look like we have a lot of gas in our interpersonal tank that we don't, you're right. I don't know if it leads to pathological narcissism, but it certainly raises us up, raises us up in this domain in which we feel far better about ourselves and far more entitled than, than we probably should. I remember back uh, when my oldest son was about three, my best friend also had a three-year-old. And... He pulled his son up on his lap and he said, Daniel, he says, you are the greatest kid in the world. You are just the most wonderful, smartest. You're just absolutely wonderful. And when his son walked out, I said, don't say that. He goes, what? He goes, don't tell him he's the most wonderful kid in the world. He goes, don't you think your kids are the most wonderful kids in the world? I said, I don't know. I haven't seen all of the kids in the world, but I kind of doubt it. Uh, he says, don't you want your kids to feel loved? Oh, absolutely. I would tell my kid, I love you. I will do anything for you. You're wonderful to me. But just to give kids the message that they are inherently wonderful, entitled human beings creates problems because it cranks the sociometer up. It gives them self-esteem without any basis. And self-esteem has to have a basis to be functional. Right, right. I think that's such an important point. And I, I love that, by the way. I think that inflating self-esteem just willy-nilly doesn't help anybody. And I think that children, more than anything, need to feel loved. They need to feel secure, you know, to yes. uh, borrow, uh, you know, terminology from the attachment world. But they do need to be connected to reality. They need to go through socialization and learn how to make friends and how to communicate with others and not be obnoxious and share and, you know, so on. I agree entirely. Yes. Right, right. So having that self-esteem built over years of having healthy relationships with your parents, having good relationships with peers because you learn how to behave. And I think that's very important. And obviously, we all have our quirks and you don't need to be perfect and you don't need to, you know, try very hard to fit in. You'll find your people. But having this more sober approach and more realistic approach and maybe seeing, you know, speaking with your children and seeing where, where they are probably rubbing people the wrong way. You know, we all, we all have our things that we learn, for example, you know, telling a, a bad joke <laughs> over and over again. Absolutely. Laughs, right. Maybe, maybe that knock to my self-esteem is probably a good thing. Yes. <laughs> no. And I tell myself that. I mean, we all do things. We all have interactions that are awkward. We make bad decisions. We fail. We have we researchers have our manuscripts rejected by journals and that sort of thing. And, and you feel, oh, man, it's deflating. You feel kind of bad about yourself. And I tell myself that's OK. 
You don't need to just automatically feel good and boost it up. Say, okay, it's reasonable that I don't feel good about myself right now because I have floundered or failed in some ways. And that's part of life. And that's okay. So it's absolutely okay to have episodes of of low self-esteem. It goes up and down on a daily basis. I can sometimes I I can feel great from five minutes later. Oh, my God, I, I feel terrible about myself. Nothing wrong with that. Now, if you get stuck in low self-esteem, then, then it's an issue. And you, right, have to, right. you have to decide, is it because I'm in a social environment where everybody is rejecting of me for some reason, or am I simply misperceiving reality? And a lot of people do. A lot of people feel far less accepted than they really should. And their self-esteem does need to be boosted. Right. So I think I think that's a great point. That was going to be my next question of... People who are stuck in that loop of low self-esteem, you know, some people had difficult childhoods in, uh, and there's a range of difficult childhoods. You know, some people might have had loving parents, but had a really bad time at school, right? They didn't uh, make any friends or, you know, they were bullied. And these things, you know, we use this word trauma. Uh, and, and it's a popular world word. And sometimes people think that it's a, you know, a very, very um, serious and, and uh, extreme uh, negative experience. Sometimes, you know, just going to middle school and getting bullied, that's enough to traumatize you and kind of, um, you know, it recalibrates your gauge, uh, you know, in, in a way that you might be picking up on information that's uh, not accurate anymore. You might be hypervigilant and you might have this negative bias where, you know, just someone giving you a, a little bit of a look uh, and you're going to interpret that as, oh, they don't like me. They're rejecting me. So people who do have that kind of um, uncalibrated uh, self-esteem gauge, what would you suggest for them? I think in, in, there, there's some easy cases that once they hear this, they begin to realize that their perception of reality, of social reality, is not always accurate. And that's true of all, true of, all of us. Sometimes I think we're, we're liked more than, <laughs> than we think we are, and sometimes we're disliked more than we think we are. And, that, and that's right. normal. So I think once people begin to sort of do some personal reality testing, I think that they can improve in some ways of either recalibrating and saying, well, no, when I look around, I am my social connections with other people. I'm accepted as much as anybody, not 100 percent. Nobody's accepted 100 percent. But as much as the people around me, yeah, I think people like me. OK, I think people can recalibrate just fine on their own in more serious cases, particularly people who did grow up with a lot of rejection and their parents neglected or abused or ignored them or or rejected them openly. I mean, th- that's the place for clinical and counseling psychology, I think, to step in. That's a little bit deeper and you can't undo sometimes 20 years of social abuse, as you say, trauma, you know, just through your own thinking about it. So uh, there is a place for, for counseling and psychotherapy to help people recalibrate this thing. Um, yeah, a, re, a, a miscalibrated sociometer is a problem. I used to have right. a car back, car back in the day, you know, who, you know, it always told me that I had a quarter of a tank less gas than I actually did. I couldn't trust it. And, you know, once you know that, you can kind of adjust. But if you don't know that, you're going to run out of gas. And I think the sociometer is sort of the same way when it, if it's miscalibrated. Right, right. I think, uh, you know, CBT works on this a lot about these yes. patterns of thinking where we misinterpret and just understanding that we are misinterpreting, we are negatively biasing, you know, all of the social information that we're getting uh, I, I think that's a great step forward, you know, to to improve improve our relationship with others and improve our relationship with ourselves. And, and one one finding that came out in some of the studies we did is that for all of us, for almost everybody, we have a bias to perceive things less positively they, than they are. There's a negative bias in our perceptions right. of how accepted we are by other people. And we often interpret neutral feedback from other people. Yeah, this person doesn't really accept me, but they don't reject me either. Yeah, they just sort of tolerate me being there. We interpret that as rejection. So I've realized in my own life sometimes that I have felt rejected by people who weren't rejecting me at all. They just weren't accepting me. They didn't care one way or another. Now, that's still not particularly pleasant <laughs> when you when somebody just doesn't care whether they're, they're talking to you or not. 
Um, but that is different than somebody who's explicitly rejecting you because they dislike you or because you have bad characteristics of some kind. So just people need to keep in mind your perceptions of how accepted you are are generally biased a little bit in a negative direction. Right, right. I think the, you know, the quote, it's not about you, I think is always great to remember because people are having, you know, their own problems, they're thinking their thoughts, they're, uh, you know, they have all sorts of uh, issues back home. And if they are not paying attention to you at any certain moment or, you know, giving you uh, neutral feedback, that doesn't mean that you know they're not accepting of you right. in a different circumstance. Yeah, that, that, that's very good, good advice. And the thing I would add to that is at times in which you felt like other people were somewhat rejecting, ask yourself whether it matters in this context. <laughs> it often right. does. I mean, you know, with coworkers and peer group members and loved ones, yes, it does matter how much they accept us. But we all have our feelings hurt and feel rejected by complete strangers. I remember being in Switzerland once and I was checking out of a store and I sort of tried to crack a joke with the person who was checking me out. And she looked at me like I was an idiot. Maybe it was just a cultural thing. You know, I said the wrong thing. But I, when I walked out into the street really feeling bad about myself. Oh, my God, that woman thought I was an idiot. I mean, she just looked at me with just scorn. And then I stopped and thought, well, who cares? It, it doesn't matter. I'm in another country. I'm never going to cross paths with these people again. Uh, so sometimes we can talk ourselves down. By simply saying, right. yes, this person didn't like me very much. Does it really matter? Does it say anything about me that I really need to know? And I'll just go on with my life and forget about it. Right, right, right. I think, uh, you know, calibrating our sensitivity also to others is important. As you said, I can imagine you coming in with your American cheerfulness and she just wasn't <laughs> having it. <laughs> it's probably, probably not actually a negative indication in any way. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to, to move on to this idea that I have that I would love to hear what you think, because, you know, when people speak about self-esteem, I think they're talking about a lot of times our relationships to ourselves. And in, when we look at our relationship with ourselves and if we want to improve it, right, if there's a lot of negative self-talk and, uh, you know, we're, we're in general just feeling very insecure and bad about ourselves. I think that instead of focusing on self-esteem, when we're, when we're talking about, you know, this internal uh, world, this very much this self-relationship, I think that it's much more helpful to think about self-respect. And I want to, I want to give a little background about what I mean, because when we are, you know, if we're, Drinking too much alcohol, not exercising, smoking too much weed, playing too much video games, you know, sleeping in late, not getting work done, you know, whatever our advice is. And, you know, we, we all have our, our weaknesses, but if we're letting ourselves slip in all sorts of ways, and I think that creates this relationship with ourselves where we don't feel like we can trust ourselves. We don't feel like we are going to keep our own promises. And that, I think, erodes our own self-respect. So when people talk about self-esteem, you know, in, in uh, you know, lay terms, I think a lot of times they're just talking about, do I feel good about myself? Am I happy with myself? And I think that if we want to go on this journey of self-improvement, it's, a lot more useful to talk about our self-respect because when we do build that self-respect and when we do, you know, keep our own promises to ourselves, when we realize that we can be reliable, I can trust myself, I can rely on myself, I think that allows us to go into the world with a lot more confidence. So I would love to hear what you think about that idea. I think you're drawing an exceptionally important distinction that helps to clarify the whole self-esteem issue. Right. You're right. I think a lot of people sometimes do. Let me back up. Sure. We've, we feel good and bad about ourselves for a couple of different reasons. And so far, we've been talking about we feel good or bad about ourselves. Our self-esteem goes up and down in response to how we're being treated by other people and the degree to which we feel like we're being accepted and relationally valued by others. But you're absolutely right. We can also feel good and bad about ourselves, somewhat independent of other people's judgments of us, 
by how we evaluate ourselves, the thing you're calling self-respect. Um, I, I don't know exactly what term I would choose. I think that's probably as good as any. I haven't thought about this in terms of self-respect before. I think that's a great idea. But yes, I've got goals for myself, the way I would like to be and the things I would like to accomplish and how I would like to behave in an optimal world. If everything was perfect, here's how I would like to be. The thing you're talking about is sort of my assessment of how close am I to living in that way. And none of us live there 100% of the time. We break our diets and we don't exercise and we do unhealthy things, sure. And we mistreat other people. And even if they don't know it, we can feel bad about ourselves. So they're not rejecting us. They think we were being nice, but we realize inside, oh my God, I shouldn't have done that. So that's an important <laughs> distinction. We can feel good about our, bad about ourselves for self-esteem reasons based on other people's acceptance and rejection of us, but also our own self-evaluation are we meeting our own goals? And I think that that's a, and, and people have to do that. If you don't have standards for yourself, I guess you just, what, what would you do? I, I don't know. You just walk around and sort of behave randomly. It's like you don't have any internal navigation system to say, what should I do in this situation or that situation? Oh, should I eat all of these little Debbie cakes that I bought at the store? Yeah, I no, I, I'd feel bad about myself doing that. So, um, so it's a navigation system to figure out what you want to be and how you want to act and then to judge yourself. So it's not, again, I don't, I don't want to say that it's important. I don't self-respect is not the important thing. It's still a gauge of, am I living the way that I would like to, to live? So we can't just plug people into something and give them self-respect for no reason. We have right. to calibrate their self-respect to whether they are living in a way that helps them meet their goals. And they're doing what they think they should to have the high quality life they want to have. I think that's a very important distinction. That's a great idea. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So what you mentioned about meeting our goals, I think that is the that is what self-respect is picking up on, right? I think that living in alignment with our values and our principles. And you know, if we want to be the type of person who lives a healthy lifestyle and we're not, you know, living in alignment with that, I think that starts to eat away at us. And when we, you know, speak about improving our relationships with ourselves, I think that's a very, um, very immediate thing that we can focus on. And it's in our control. You know, some people who are, you know, as you said, in social environments that might be very difficult, you know, that they're feeling rejected all the time, they're not accepted, you still have control over the way that you're living. And I think that, you know, not, not to minimize self-esteem, but in that self-improvement journey, it's, it's a great idea to focus on what we do have control over. And I think living in alignment, you know, with our values is an important part. Of that. Yeah. I, I do like that. And, and the nice side effect is, if you do that, and if those goals are truly valuable goals, now, if you have diabolical goals, I guess there's some people that have horrible goals, you know, of some kind, um, and they might feel really good about the fact they can pursue their horrible goals and have a lot of self-respect, but most of us aren't like that. But if you have positive goals, fulfilling those goals will not only help you move your life in the direction you want, but it will actually increase your connections with other people because they're socially desirable. And so I think your self-esteem will go up because the sociometer is going to realize, well, no, you're behaving in a ways that make you more acceptable and likable and useful to other people. So uh, you get sort of two for one in, in that case. Absolutely. I think that building that self-respect gives you the confidence to show up in your relationships and show up with people in a completely different way. And I, I think, as you said, you know, it'll also improve your self-esteem in the long run. Now, one of the things that you talk about is our self-talk, right? Our internal dialogue that we have with ourselves. And unfortunately, this can oftentimes be very negative, right? As you said, the curse of the self, there's a, um, it's a double-edged sword, right? It gives us our human abilities, right? We're able to perceive ourselves. We have this ability to you know, to look at ourselves and think about our thoughts and think about our behaviors. And that, uh, that ability also allows us to perspective take, right. And, and empathize and to think about what other people are experiencing. 
But the other side of that is that internal dialogue can um, sometimes, you know, it can be deafening. <laughs> you can't yes. turn it off. <laughs> and here comes, you know, the, the point of meditation, being able to have a little bit more control over it, maybe first not even control, but just an awareness, right? A mindfulness of how am I speaking to myself, right? Am I speaking to myself in a way that I would speak to my friends, right? And oftentimes we, we can think things that are very, very negative that we would never say to a good friend, right? So what have you found about this internal dialogue, you know, in your work and how we can improve it? Great question. Um, one of the insights that got me interested in this whole topic of the curse of the self and the problems created by self-awareness was my own experience with first learning to meditate about 30 years ago, because I realized for the very first time how completely out of control my mind was, that I was just thinking all of the time, not just about myself in terms of, well, are you good or bad about this, but thinking about all the things I needed to do and the things I messed up yesterday, just this constant barrage of thinking. Um, right. My, my, it's like we talk about our brain, but we don't have any control over it. Our brain thinks without our permission in a lot of cases. And I thought that was so weird. And so I became fascinated about, about, in fact, there was a point when I first started meditating where I consciously thought, is everybody as crazy as me? Is everybody's mind going on like this? Because it had never dawned on me. It's a natural part of, of human experience. And some of those thoughts are good and some are bad. They're often very distracting, whether they are good or bad. We just have this constant dialogue, monologue of just self-related thoughts that take us out of the present situation and keep us from focusing on the things we should focus on, like the work we're doing at the moment or the interactions we're having with somebody, our minds off someplace else. So that was an insight to me just personally. And that's what got me interested in this. Um, the negative self-talk is obviously more problematic in most cases than the positive self-talk, because you're absolutely right. We say things to ourselves in our own minds. A lot of us swear at ourselves about how damn stupid we are and what an idiot, what did you do this for, in ways you'd never say to other people. And that is a particular problem, to just beat the heck out of yourself on a regular basis, and some people do. Now, some people believe that that kind of negative self-talk is beneficial because it helps keep them in line. If I wasn't really critical about myself and I did bad things, you know, I'd just keep on doing bad things. And I get that. I used to believe that. Um, but how mean do you need to be to yourself in order to keep <laughs> yourself in line? And I discovered myself, you know, I was probably 10 times meaner to myself than I, than I needed to be. And so it was that insight that, that sort of led me to pick up, you know, and start doing some of the research on self-compassion that I've done. Uh, Kristen Neff at the University of Texas, who started the work on self-compassion, just a great, great line of research. I mean, just incredibly interesting. It was it was sort of paradigm shifting in my way that you don't need to be mean to yourself. Be as nice to yourself as you try to be to your own loved ones when they're having a problem, when they've failed at something. If a friend of yours comes and says, oh, my goodness, I failed a test or I lost a say or I got fired from a job. You don't say, well, you idiot. What is wrong with you? But you do that to yourself sometimes, right? Um, and, and it was fascinating to me that, in fact, you could treat yourself more nicely while still being stern with, your, with yourself when you misbehave. If you had a friend who was completely misbehaving, and yeah, you'd sometimes say, well, you know, you probably should have done that differently. But you don't beat them up, you know, verbally, but you beat yourself up. So, yeah, self-compassion is a way to counteract some of that negative self-talk you're talking about. Right. So before we delve into self-compassion, what exactly does it mean, right? Because we're not talking about self-complacency. We're not talking about just letting ourselves do whatever we want and whenever we make a mistake, it's all good. There's a little bit more nuance here. So how would you define it? Well, I, I would start by thinking about what does it mean to be compassionate toward somebody else? You know, you're kind, you're concerned about their best interests, you don't treat them meanly. Does it mean you let them go do everything they want to and tell them that everything they do, even if it's bad, is actually okay? No, that's not a compassionate approach. Compassion right. has to do with caring for the welfare of somebody and behaving in ways that promote their welfare as effectively as possible. And generally that means being nice to them, but if you have to draw a hard line and the compassionate thing may be, in fact, 
to, to yell at them and say, that is just horrible. You should never do that again. That's sometimes a compassionate approach. That's okay. But it's being oriented toward the overall well-being of another person. And in general, that again, that includes primarily being kind to them. So no, it's not self-complacency. It's not saying anything goes. It's not artificially making yourself feel good about yourself. It's not flattering yourself when you don't deserve it. Uh, it's being realistic, but saying, hey, yeah, everybody goes up now and then. So yeah, let's fix it and move on. Yeah, it, it also encourages you to repair the damage that you've done. That's a compassionate thing thing as well. So yeah, a lot of people feel like it's, it's you're being a slacker and you're being self-indulgent if you're being self-compassionate. Now, indulging other people is not compassion. If you're doing it to other people, indulging yourself is not being compassionate toward yourself. Right, right. I think that we can easily mistake, you know, people who are overly agreeable are going to think that compassion is, you know, this ultimate virtue of, and I think they conflate the two things, right? They might be more prone to people pleasing. Uh, they have a hard time setting boundaries, but that's not necessarily in everybody's best interests, right? So this idea of compassion, of having each other's best interests, and then self-compassion, right? Looking at ourselves and wanting the best for us and having a little bit more of a gentle touch when we do make a mistake, right? Understanding that it's not the end of the world, everything is fixable, and just having a little bit of uh, a little bit more leeway with ourselves and that end of not jumping into the very, you know, critical negative talk, I think is very, very important, especially for people who are kind of lost right now. They don't know where they want to go. Their self-esteem is low. Their self-respect is low. I think a, in that case, a good place to start is also to develop your self-compassion. And that doesn't mean, as we said, anything goes. It doesn't mean that we're complacent with ourselves, right? And then we let ourselves do whatever we want because we want to build that self-respect. We want to live in alignment with our values. But having a little bit of humility also and understanding that we're not perfect. And, you know, if we are starting this journey of self-improvement, you know, it's one step in front of the other. It's improving that self-talk in a way that we kind of need to parent ourselves at the beginning, right? And I think that helps people understand what compassion means. That's very well said. And you have to remember, you know, when I first stumbled into self-compassion, you know, I wasn't, I was 50 or 55 years old. I'd spent my whole life thinking that it was to my benefit to be hard on myself in my mind. So it takes some time to, to get over that. And the, the time in which it really slapped me in the face, I my, my research team was working on a research grant application on the topic of self-compassion. And the, the deadline came for submitting it. And somehow I botched up the submission process and it didn't go through online like it was supposed to. We missed the deadline and I called the person who was in charge and they said, no, we can't take it now. And I was uh, just beating the crap out of myself. <laughs> what an idiot I was. And I was verbalizing that. And one of my graduate students said, uh, Dr. Leary, you know, hey, <laughs> this was a grant about self-compassion and you're not being very compassionate to yourself. And, I thought, and it just showed me how hard it is to break out of that. I mean, we just all, well, most of us do that a lot. <laughs> and so that, that sort of turned me around a little bit. So, yeah, when you get on, when you beat yourself up for not submitting a self-compassion grant on time, you know, maybe you're a, lo <laughs> maybe you're a lost cause. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, think, I think that, I think that, you know, walking the walk, is important and understanding that understanding that you know this, this is a great example because self-compassion doesn't mean we're not you know upset about making a mistake but it helps us take everything in proportion right and you know i i'm very much aspired to be disciplined and i think that self-discipline is important but countering that you know with with that self-compassion with a little bit more grace towards I, ourselves is so important because we're not perfect you know we're Absolutely. going to make and we want to be able to learn from those mistakes as well and i think um 
we, you know, tough love isn't always the answer. No, that's no. right. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And so what it really comes down to sometimes is a second order self-compassion where you have to be self-compassionate toward yourself for not being adequately self-compassionate. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, we're going to split. We're going to call ourselves names and, you know, we're going to, it's very easy to slip into that kind of critical talk. I think that's very automatic, uh, especially in today's world. We're just so bombarded with information and expectations of ourselves. It's hard to find that, you know, mindful place and to slow ourselves down and to really, you know, be aware of that internal dialogue. And I think it's very, very important to see how we're speaking to ourselves, see how we're living in terms of moving towards our goals and how we are in our relationships. You know, are we uh, in a healthy environment that's propping us up? Do we need to change anything in, you know, our, our interpersonal world? Do we need to change some of our behaviors? But having a little bit more grace towards ourselves is, is, a, is a good place to start. Uh, because I think that self-criticism can very easily devolve into, you know, being very neurotic, very anxious, very depressed. And uh, that's not helpful because we can't enjoy the journey that way. Absolutely true. And I just want to reiterate something that we both said earlier for your listeners. This doesn't mean you're telling yourself that your failures and foibles and bad behavior are okay. It's you're still self-evaluating and saying, I shouldn't have done that. I need to work on that. I'm going to try to fix that. Um, that's part of the compassionate process. I don't want anybody to think that this means you can do whatever you want to, because that's, that's, that's lame. Right. Right. I think that, you know, understanding that we made a mistake and not beating ourselves up for over it, but just taking the sting out of it a little bit, yes. I think is really important because we want to, you know, keep one foot in front of the other. We want to keep improving uh, and we we want to take that information, you know, integrate it, you know, make changes if we need to. But it's very, very easy to fall into a place of being very, very tough on ourselves. And then that can paralyze us. Right. And that's not helpful uh, for anyone. So your book, The Curse of the Self, I would love if you could tell the audience a little bit about uh, what they can find there and also why ultimately you chose that title. Yeah, you know, the, the title is interesting because you mentioned earlier that our capacity for self-awareness is very important. We, we would be in trouble if we didn't have that capacity. We'd be in trouble if we didn't have a self. You couldn't get up and decide what to do in the morning consciously. So... I played with a lot of different titles, but to try to give it an even handed title, like the so-so self was one of them or the double edged self. It, it just, they didn't, it wasn't there because I was going to focus on the problems that are created by self-awareness. And the reason I became interested in that is after I learned to meditate and I realized what a problem my own self thoughts were in my own life, I realized that psychology and social psychology in particular seem to have oversold the benefits of self-awareness. Self-awareness theory from the 1980s really stressed that when you behaved in a non-self-aware state, when you weren't thinking consciously about what you were doing, it would lead to bad behaviors. People would become de-individuated. They would just go on their primal impulses without any self-controls at all. And so you always needed to be self-aware. And there were theories talking about how important it was to have a strong identity, to figure out who you were and to latch on to that identity and make it the core of your behavior so you knew how to act. As I got more into this and started realizing in my own life, I realized that too much self-awareness was often a bad thing, that a really strong identity was often a bad thing because your identity is often very small and narrow. And most of us are much more multifaceted and complex than the way we conceptualize ourselves in our own heads as our identity. That in fact, this process of self-awareness was a double-edged sword. There was a curse side to it that haunted us. And I sort of wanted to play on the idea of, you know, old horror movies from 1950s where they, the curse of the, the, the swamp monster kind of thing, uh, because right. it does, it, it curses us, it haunts us. And so in the book, I go through a number of ways in which self-awareness can be a problem. In every case, the problem emerges from simply too much self-awareness. 
that a little bit of it in each case is something that's necessary, but we take it too far. So I talk about just the fact that too much self-awareness is distracting and preoccupying. It causes us to choke under pressure by thinking too much about what we're doing in many cases when we could actually perform behaviors automatically. So some of the problems with the self are we just think too much. Some, some of the problems are we think either too negatively, most commonly, or too positively, that we distort reality in our own minds about ourselves, and that leads us to make bad decisions and have emotions we shouldn't have. Another curse is that we identify so much with our social identities at times, our group identities, that it leads us to behave in ways that are not good for other groups. Once you define yourself as a member of one group, then members of other groups are outsiders. If you hadn't defined yourself that way, if you had defined yourself more broadly that we're all human beings, we wouldn't have prejudice, for example. That prejudice and discrimination comes about from the ways we think about ourselves and our group memberships. Um, it I talked about negative emotions of all kinds. So many of our negative emotions are not in response to the thing that's happening right in front of us right now. It has to do with our thoughts about the past or our thoughts about the future. That we're upset about something that happened to us in second grade, I can get bummed out right now about that thing that happened back in 1962 or about the thing that I have to do three months from now. And so I really wanted to present all of the ways in which self-awareness can be a problem and to offer some ideas for how you can dial that back to improve the quality of life. Right. I think that's very helpful in this day and age. And I think the curse of the self is, you know, very, um, very on point. When we think about, you know, this biblical story, you know, in Genesis of how Adam and Eve fell from Garden of Eden because they became self-aware, right? There's, there's definitely a metaphor in that where we lose that paradise, we lose that, you know, oneness with nature, you know, that we maybe, maybe, you know, meditation and psychedelics brings us back there momentarily, but the self and that self-awareness has, is what brings us into our reality today. And it definitely is a double-edged sword, you know, to be, uh, um, to, to be a little bit more uh, uh, conservative than uh, staying on the curse. But uh, I, think, I think it's so, so important to understand these things and how, you know, how we perceive ourselves, how we speak to ourselves, how we are with others. And understanding this, these intricacies, uh, anyone who wants to you know, delve further into this, the curse of the self really gives you this amazing background, um, you know, into the whole history of uh, the terminology around it. So definitely uh, anyone who's interested uh, should check it out. And, you know, for our uh, listeners, I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, your academic journey. I think it's uh, definitely inspiring to hear, you know, how someone got started and how how you found the things that you were interested in. That, that's a hard question to answer because looking back, it feels mainly like just sort of stumbling down the road and you get to a certain fork in the road and you just sort of take one. And it just seems like you, I sort of got somewhere that I never really knew I was headed. I mean, I, there was not much conscious. My, myself was not much involved in my professional journey. It's not like I had it mapped out and I was going to pursue it in some ways. So I decided to major in, in uh, psychology in college because I took a psychology class as a senior in high school and just found it completely fascinating of all of the things that I had studied. So I majored in psychology, didn't know what area I'd go into initially, but I took my first class in social psychology and late in my sophomore year and decided, no, this is cool. This is cool that we can do laboratory experiments where you study people's social behavior and deceive them into thinking various things are going on in the situation and see how they react. I thought that was cool. So I went to graduate school at the University of Florida, where I specialized in social psychology and uh, statistics. And all along the way, I knew I would be doing research, but I primarily saw myself as being a college teacher as opposed to a researcher. I'd gone to a liberal arts college as an undergraduate, and I saw myself as sort of ending up in a liberal arts college. That's what I wanted to do. So my first job was at Denison University in Ohio, which is a liberal arts college. Loved that a lot. Uh, was there for three years. Uh, the big problem there is my wife was from Florida and the Ohio winters just didn't suit her all that well. <laughs> so I knew that was probably not a long-term option. Uh, I got a job at the University of Texas at Austin then. Uh, they were looking for a social psychologist in their educational psychology department. 
who interfaced with topics related to counseling and clinical psychology. And because I was studying social emotions and social anxiety and things of that nature, I seemed to fit there a while. And so I stayed there a couple of years, but I was looking for something. Denson, on the other hand, was primarily teaching. University of Texas was primarily research and graduate training. And I was looking for something in the middle. And so I, my next position was at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, which of all the schools in the country, I think does perhaps the best job of balancing the, the merits of a liberal arts college with the merits of a research university. And I just loved it there. I was there for 26 years. And then later wow. on, uh, later on, Duke got in, in, in contact. They were starting a new social psychology PhD program and asked, invited me to apply for a position there. So I spent my last 13 years at Duke and then retired in 2019, just, just before the pandemic broke out. I got out just in time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right before the ship hit the iceberg. It was just just, just luck right of the draw. The <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and along the way, my interests were always in people's concerns with what other people thought of them. Started out studying impression management, and how people manage their impressions for others. That's what led into my interest in acceptance and rejection, realizing that a lot of the reason we're concerned with what people think is because uh, we, we want them to value and accept us. That led into the self-esteem angle when we realized that self-esteem was tied into people's reactions to rejection. And then because of that meditation experience, that sort of moved a little bit. I'd already been studying self-related topics that moved me more into the dysfunctional aspects of self-awareness and then later into self-compassion and intellectual humility, which we didn't didn't talk about, but just people being less sure of themselves than they probably, people are often more sure of themselves than they should be and what's behind that. So it, it all fits sort of, sort of fits as you look back and put the pieces together. But again, it was just wandering down the road and sort of doing what sounded interesting to me. Amazing. I think that's, and that's very, very important to know, you know, it's sometimes when we see somebody's career, it seems like, oh, they had it all figured out from day one. But I, I like to call it following your nose. You know, follow your interests, follow the things that you're good at and you feel good at, and that put you in a state of flow, right? Where your skills, interests, and the challenges match. And sometimes we kind of need to, you know, ramble on and uh, find different, uh, different directions and uh, test different things, but it all comes together. And I, on that topic of intellectual humility, I think it's very, very relevant in uh, today's day and age where, you know, we're all in this, in these silos, right? We're, you know, enjoying that confirmation bias. We're all scrolling in our, you know, algorithm worlds where they're completely uh, curated for us. And it often, often we don't have that intellectual humility of how do I know this? How do I know this for sure? And I, I would love, I would love to hear a little bit about your work on that topic. Yeah. And even that was something I, you know, I sort of got pulled into. It's not that I suddenly decided to study it. I was invited to participate in a research group back uh, around eight or 10 years ago. Um, and, but, but again, it fit in with my interest in how you talk to yourself about yourself. And here it's how do you talk to yourself about your beliefs? How are you so sure that you are right? Because we have a study where we ask people, think of all the disagreements you have with other people about trivial things or about important things. Think of all the disagreements you have. A lot of times you don't know who was right, but if you had to guess who was right, what percentage of the time were you right in disagreements that you have? And the average person thinks that they're right at least two thirds of the time, uh, which you know is, is interesting. It can't happen. It can't be. And we only had 4% who said that they were right less than half the time. So clearly we're all overestimating the degree to which we're correct. So it's fascinating to me how we sustain that, myself included, we all do it. And what can you do to make people a little less sure of what they believe? It's okay to believe whatever you believe, whatever I believe about anything that happens to me or about the facts of the world, or about politics or religion. The reason we believe it is we think it's right. So it's not that you should walk through life saying, well, I don't know anything. No, you believe things. But do you at least recognize the possibility that most of those beliefs could be wrong or at least not optimal? And most of us don't do that. It's just it's very hard to do. And it creates all the problems you're talking about in a polarized world. Everybody thinks they're right. And that can't be true. And wouldn't it be weird if I 
was somehow right 90% of the time. <laughs> no, that would be weird as heck, but I think I am. <laughs> we all do. We all overestimate our, our confidence and our, and our accuracy about things. Right, right. And we're all just in that confirmation bias of seeking information that's going to confirm what we believe anyways. But I think this is such an important point to just remember it's good to have humility. And I think, you know, for anyone who's thinking about going down an academic track, it helps you have a little bit more humility when you understand, you know, certain topics like we've been discussing today, self-esteem, you know, can seem like a very intuitive, simple topic, but when you really delve into it, there's so much more there. So having a little bit of humility, I think also keeps you in this, you know, childlike uh, state where you can learn more. Because if we're so sure of ourselves, that also closes us off to new information. So not a, not a great place to be. Uh, right. So I think we can all use a little bit more humility these days. Absolutely. Wonderful. I think it's a great spot to wrap up. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been fascinating. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed myself. I appreciate you asking me.